Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, now let me pray for us this morning before we get started here. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity for all of us to come before you in worship and to hear your word. Lord, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts, that it would confront us, that it would move us to great faith and hope in your son, Jesus. We thank you for that most significant gift to all the world uh, that we commemorate this morning and every morning of your son, Jesus Christ, and his spirit to us. Uh, Lord, pray that your, your spirit would be with us this morning, opening our ears and our hearts, and even helping me to speak for your name's sake. Amen. Well, we are looking at Luke today, and my great gift to you this morning is that I'm not going to go over it all and maybe even release you early, so you're welcome in advance. Um, but the passage this morning we're going to be looking at is uh, the birth announcement uh, found in Luke by the angel Gabriel concerning the Davidic Messiah who would miraculously be born through a virgin. A couple of background things are important, though, and they're going to really set the pace for what we talk about. So I'm going to go over some of those. First of all, Luke Acts is inseparable. He wrote those together. Uh, they're two books because they're about the size of what fits on a scroll. Um, and in this, Luke lays out the foundational issues, uh, and the answers of these issues all come in Acts. And the questions have to do with things that the church is struggling with, Guess when? About the time Acts ended. So Luke had in his mind what he was writing all along, and he's presenting these questions and even hints to the answers of them. So his purpose when he writes is to highlight God's plan. First of all, how in the world could Jew and Gentile end up as equal in a community that was indeed planted by God? even though that community's roots uh, would have been grounded in a promise to Israel. And that's some hard stuff. I remember when Shaul Wall first became a believer, and Linda was telling me, she's like, what do you do with Israel? Like, how does all that relate? And she's right to ask that question, and so was the church, primarily Gentile in that time, asking that question. How does all this relate? Uh, to us, it doesn't seem to be as much of an issue, but for Luke, there are four primary issues. And I want to point them out because we're going to hit on every one of them this morning. The first one, how did, how did the hope of God open up to all races, uh, not just Israel? And, and also to the exclusion of things like the law and temple worship and even Jewish tradition. I mean, if you can imagine a people who have been worshiping God for thousands of years and all of a sudden the new covenant comes on the scene through Jesus and all of the script changes. That would be, that would be an alarming thing to occur if you could imagine it. Uh, it, would be, it would be a really significant change in the life of God and his people. Uh, the second one is how could God's plan be at work and the Jewish nation, who's the most natural audience for God's plan, be rejecting it and even persecuting Christians, God's people. Um, that would cause a lot of problems, I think, probably within all of our hearts at that moment in time. Um, and, and we'd wonder, that we'd ask the question, uh, is the Christian community blessed, particularly amidst persecutions and great trials, uh, or are they cursed? And if they're blessed, what's the evidence of their blessing? How, how would we know that they were blessed? Um, is this what the kingdom of Messiah was supposed to look like? When you think of a great glorious time of the kingdom of Messiah, I'll tell you what wouldn't have come to mind right off the bat. 
persecution and trouble and I mean from everybody both God's people Israel and all of the ne- of the empire of Rome uh, that probably wouldn't have been the first thing that came to your mind and yet it was very much in keeping with their experience um, and the answer to these questions they'll be alluded even this morning in the announcement of the Messiah a third question how does the person and teaching of the crucified Jesus fit into God's plan. When you think of the Messiah King, you don't think of one that's crucified by the great world empire, and yet that's the one that they had. Uh, Also, how could Jesus, despite his absence, continue to exercise his presence and represent the hope of God? That's a pretty significant question. I think even for us, and, and even how could the church exalt such an absent figure, and regard him as the center of God's work. How could a slain figure bring the consummation of God's promises? Weighty, significant questions. Well, Acts supplies major answers to the questions, and they emphasize the exaltation of Jesus through his spirit in the church, and we come to find that out. But Luke really lays the groundwork By presenting Jesus, who is the Christ, the one who had to suffer and to die. Uh, The final question that that Luke is really trying to answer for the church is, what does it mean to respond to Jesus? What's required? And what could one expect when they made such a commitment to respond to Jesus? And, And how should we live until the day when Jesus returns? And our hope finally is realized. Well, this is going to be illustrated by Mary and her testimony today. So I want you guys to be aware of these foundational questions that Luke is actually trying to answer. Um, These questions about God's plan, the chosen one, and the emerging new community, they're at the heart of Luke's gospel. And by the way, this is not just an introduction to to the book of the Gospel of Luke. This is part of the introduction to all of Luke's Acts. And Luke is setting it up right now. So a really crucial announcement that's about to happen. And if we're going to be faithful readers, we'll have to ask the same questions when we come to the text. I had a professor who used to always say, you know what, you bringing your questions to the text is probably not the greatest approach. You might want to make your questions the same as the ones that God has and bring those to the text. You might come to find you were asking the wrong questions in the first place. Uh, So these are some pretty significant questions. Um, Let me ask you this. Do you think that questions regarding God's plan, regarding a crucified king who's ruling right now all of heaven and earth, uh, and the nature of the spirit-filled church and discipleship, do you think those are relevant questions for today? I hope you're saying yes, because... They're the most relevant questions ever. And for us in this particular society at this particular time, they're questions that we need to be revisiting all the more. Uh, So the emphatic yes is the answer to that. Our passage this morning is from the introduction of Luke Acts. And it begins to answer all these questions just right off of the bat, even in the announcement of Jesus. So let's go to our text. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start there with, uh, with verses 26 through 27. And you know what? There's far more loaded here, as you might suspect, that, that seems to be here on the surface. So uh, let's look at those passages. So 
We're in Luke chapter 1, verse, starting with verse 26. We're going to read 26 and 27. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. You know, we've heard that so often. Uh, and just kind of those words that, that they seem familiar to us. Um, but we, we need to take some time to acknowledge what's going on here. First of all, Luke uh, closely aligns this first, his first announcement, which I'm not going to read because there's not enough time, but he gives an announcement to Zechariah, you remember, for him and Elizabeth, that Elizabeth would bear a son and it would be John the Baptist. Well, this parallels that, and you can see it right there in the verse because it says in the sixth month, which we come to find out is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So these are very linked, and um, also there's the appearance of Gabriel, the angel, who's making the announcement, which he's also the one that made the announcement to Zechariah in the temple by the incense. And so we have Gabriel coming on the scene again, and you know, we know about Gabriel because he was the one who gave announcements to Daniel in the book of Daniel, prophecies. And we're going to have to look at those a little bit, um, just a little. Uh, but, and now here he is to Zechariah making an announcement again. And now, here again, he's making another announcement to Mary. And what we know about the announcements and the nature of those announcements that Gabriel makes is he is a, and I'm going to use a big word, but I'm going to use another word that just describes it. So in case I accidentally use a big word again, everybody will go, okay, yeah, we know what that is. He is an eschatological messenger. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, so he's a messenger that comes to speak a message from God about the end times. You see why you just use one word, right? So he's coming to be a messenger about the end times. So guess what? He was a messenger about the end times in Daniel, and when he came to Zechariah and now to Mary, guess what he's coming to give announcements about? The end times. That's actually what he's coming to make an announcement about. Um, and the question that the good Jew would have in their mind right now, and hopefully us too, is what will he say now? What time is this, and what is he going to say? Well, Luke uses Gabriel to stage this whole episode, so he's really the key to understanding what's about to be announced. Um, and immediately the Jew, when he sees Gabriel come on the scene, he thinks of, Daniel 8, 15 through Daniel 9, 27, because that's where they would have been familiar with who Gabriel is. Uh, and I do got to speak briefly on it. And because it is the morning of the eve of Christmas and anticipation is in the air, it's appropriate that we would go to the book of, of Daniel. And I'm going to give just a quick synopsis because I'm not going to get too big into uh, apocalyptic literature this morning. That might be more than all of us can handle, myself included. But in chapter 8... Thanks, Chris Sanders, for that laugh. He's like, poor Jason up there sweating. In chapter 8, Gabriel tells Daniel about a vision that pertains to the time of the end. Okay? And he tells this vision, and as I start to describe it, you'll be like, I'm glad we're not getting too deep into that, about one ram with two horns, each horn representing a king of Media and Persia, and also another ram with one horn that represents Greece, and that horn is broke up, and four horns come into its place uh, that represent four kingdoms that will arise from Greece. There, that's a quick little synopsis of that, of that first vision, but it actually does pertain to what we're looking at today. Uh, these kin kingdoms are all alike, every one of them, and that they pattern 
the activities of wicked powers that have exercised their beastly dominion ever since God's vice regent Adam surrendered the dominion that was given to him by God through rebellious sin against that God. So that's what they're representing. Um, in chapter 9, Gabriel again comes, and this time he's not interpreting a vision of Daniel. This time he's given it to him. And he comes and he tells them about the 70 weeks of years pertaining to the end times. Take a deep breath and excel and be glad there's not going to be like 15 charts up here of the 70 years and how I can track it to the date and the time of whatever because we're not doing that, okay? Uh, but I will tell you just very generally because it's important. It's important because those times are coming up right here in this passage right now. And when Gabriel is referenced, the good Jews should take notice and recognize what's going on. But the first seven weeks represents the restoration of Jerusalem. And it matches the time between the revelation of Daniel and the conclusion of Malachi's prophetic ministry. You'll notice Malachi is your last book. His prophetic ministry kind of ended the, the, the prophets of this particular time, and that represents the seven weeks. Um, and, and this was a period of time that was characterized by the people benefiting from spirit-inspired leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah and spirit-inspired prophets such as Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Well, once these spirit-inspired leaders, and by the way, I keep saying spirit-inspired because that's going to come to play again right here in the announcement. Um, but once they have left the scene, the first seven weeks is over. Following that seven-week period comes another 62-week period, which really pertains to where we're coming right now. Larry, keep laughing here. And it's, dark, it's a dark and troubled time. And these 62 weeks of years are dark and troubled. That's the nature of them. So I want you to think about it. If you and your people for 62 times 7 in all those years have been in dark, troubled times, where do you think you would be right now? You'd be feeling very hopeful that maybe that time was soon going to change. Well, this troubled time was marked by a lack of prophetic guidance. God's spirit-filled leaders and prophets weren't around. And the people did just as Proverbs 29, 18 says, they threw off all restraint. And they were being ravished by the, by the kingdoms that were to come. Um, and, and so the, the prophets all went silent, and they're waiting for God to intervene once again into history with his salvation. That's what they're all anticipating, okay? Well, at the turn of the year of our Lord, they find themselves right at the end of this first 69 weeks. Do you see the significance now? I wanted you to bring you up to the time. And all of a sudden, who's on the scene? The same eschatological messenger who is to Daniel is now on the scene. The 69 years of weeks later, making yet another announcement. And us, who if we are Israel, are weary, are really excited that Gabriel has shown up on the scene again. To give yet another announcement. So there's much anticipation. And this isn't an anticipation for more presents to add to our great glut. So we got to really kind of re-situate uh, ourselves in what's going on here. It is an anticipation after 
really hard times of a possible deliverance, that, that God's silence would be ended, that his Messiah would come, and that there would be a new exodus for God's people that would lead them out of this oppression that they were all under. Do you feel the anticipation? This is the anticipation that Christmas is actually trying, that we ought to be trying to mimic in Christmas that kind of anticipation for the new exodus, for the deliverance of our Messiah. And I think, by the way, we have cause for that as well. Well, Gabriel again comes on the scene with Zechariah and then announces an end to God's silence. You know why? Because the greatest prophet that they'd ever known was going to be born to Elizabeth, who was barren. In fact, the birth of John the Baptist came in the same fashion as the great salvific acts of God of old. And so for the great Jew who really knew the scriptures, which by the way was only everything to the left here, not to the right, as Mark always says, it's to the left. That was their scriptures. There weren't other scriptures. And so uh, as they look at those, they notice something familiar. The way John the Baptist was born and the way all this came about in a barren woman, it looked just like the other great salvific acts that God had done of old with Isaac and Samuel and Samson. And so they knew God is again at work to carry out his great work of salvation. And so it's exciting. Well, as the 69 weeks come to an end, prophecy returns with the rise of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus the Messiah. And, and so what we come to find is this. We call this a birth announcement, you know, and we're just like, oh, the birth of Jesus, meek and mild. That's not really the kind of announcement this is. And Gabriel coming on the scene and delivering it is our first clue that it's not. Uh, this is an end time. I'll use that. This is an end time announcement that the end of the age has indeed arrived, along with the reestablishing of the kingdom of God forever through the Messiah. Let me say that again. Along with the reestablishing of the kingdom of God, how long? Forever, starting then, through the Messiah. So, what they should have recognized, though, at that time is they were still being oppressed by Rome and persecuted by both Israel and Rome and just having a real hard time was that uh, the Messiah was going to be cut off, the temple was going to be destroyed, and the wicked world would be joining against the Lord and his people because guess what? Gabriel told Daniel about that too. But that had kind of eluded their anticipation. Uh, so Daniel's revelation speaks to the people of God who suffered through times of trouble. And so when they saw Daniel come on the scene, they should have been ready to understand this a little bit better. Uh, the people of God are told through Daniel that the world would be against them. And so even when Daniel comes on the scene, they should have remembered that. Like, oh, there was other parts of that, of that prophecy as well. And it would be that we would have hard times. So maybe we're right where they said we'd be. Uh, maybe it's okay that this is where we're at right now. Maybe it's right where we're supposed to be. Maybe we find ourselves right in the middle of God's plan because their concern was maybe somehow they're outside of it. Well, I only took the time to share this because this is what would have been in the good Jews' head. And, and Luke is using things like this to bring whole backdrops to their mind in this story so that they're bringing that to the text. And I want us to bring that to the text with us. Well... Also noteworthy is this. So they're paralleling Jesus' announcement with John's, okay? And there's a lot of similarities in Old Testament, but there's a lot of differences with Jesus'. One of them 
is that this great new work of God doesn't come to the temple, which is right in the center of importance for the Jew. But it did with John the Baptist, right? Even in the holy place. No, in stark contrast, this most amazing work of God, and it is the most amazing, the highest, it comes to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. And by the way, the reason it says a city in Galilee, most people wouldn't have even known where Nazareth was because it was despised, insignificant, and unclean. And so here's this great work of God coming in the the most peculiar of places. Um, Also, this work didn't come to a family of Aaronic priests. You know, that if you'll notice in the announcement before, there's a lot of uh, importance shown and, and high status honor given, which is due to both Zechariah and Elizabeth. But in this one, it's in stark contrast. You know what it comes to? It comes to a young virgin named Mary. Period. No status honors communicated. None at all whatsoever. In fact, it's just a nobody little girl in a nobody nothing place. But interestingly, and this would have spiked their interest a little bit, she was betrothed or engaged to Joseph, who is a descendant of David, and that's setting it all up right there. So that's significant for the announcement that's forthcoming now. To be betrothed means... The husband's paid a dowry to the wife's family. And that the wife, along with, and get this please, along with any children she might have had prior to their actual marriage, who he decided to take on, they, when they actually became married, would all become parts of the descendant of David. So it's kind of crucial that he would acknowledge and take on Jesus here as his own thereby making Jesus part of the descendants of David. Well, let's take a look at the announcement of the birth of the Davidic Son of God in verses 28 through 37. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Well, We might read that and go, why is she, I mean, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. I mean, we read that and it's just like, okay, is that so weird of a uh, salutation? Well, for them it was. There's Old Testament background to each of those statements. And so remember for the good Jew, right? Things are coming up in the back of their head. Alarms, flags, even for Mary. Okay, okay, so... This expression of the divine working called favor is something we also refer to as grace. Same, same term, okay? So, and it signifies God's choice of someone through whom God is going to do something special. So when he says, greetings, favored one, we're just like, okay, that's a weird greeting. For the Jew, they're like, oh, this is someone God has chosen to do something very significant in his act of salvation through. So you see, that's a very different kind of greeting than what we might hear on the outside. You know, that's the kind of greeting that was given to Noah with the flood and Gideon who judges Israel and Hannah when she's given a child in barrenness. Uh, David receives back the Ark of the Covenant as one who is a favored one. And so these are the things that come to the mind of the Jew, but there's something different here. In Mary's case, 
The favor is granted without any request. God has freely bestowed that grace or favor upon Mary apart from anything having to do with her or any request she makes. Um, So he's given favor to this one who has no claim to worthy status. She's a nobody living in nowhere. And he's raised her up from her position of lowliness and he's chosen her to have a central role in salvation history. Now, if you were the one for whom that was chosen, do you think you'd be sitting there going, uh, okay, that's perplexing. My guess is your pits would be sweatier than mine and you would be really concerned about, I don't think I'm going to measure up to this. Uh, You'd probably be pretty terrified, actually. And, And so she's trying to work through this really peculiar announcement. Um, But the reality is she's about to receive freely the special favor of God. And it's a picture, by the way, because I said, what about you if you were there? I I got some news for you, so get your pits ready. You are. You too, just as the church in the time, have been chosen freely by God, by the special favor of God, to carry out his kind initiative still today. And so for Mary and the people of the church who were very humble, they would have been encouraged to remember the nature of their calling, the weak and despised of the world, through whom God was going to use to do something great. And so should we. Um, Well, this message confirmed by the the angel's promise, the Lord is with you. And we hear that, we're like, great, you know, the Lord's with us. You know, we hear that kind of language every day. Well, Once again, there's a rootedness to that that would have even added to her being perplexed and thinking about it. Uh, The Lord is with you is something that's said to special people who are carrying out purposes of God. Um, And and it's also something that in the midst of all the anxiety that that would cause if you started measuring yourself up to the great works of God, that his divine resources and provisions were going to be there to carry you through. Um, so, just to point out for those Jews or those believers now who are Gentiles living in a time of great persecution who are supposed to, to take and disi- make disciples of all the nations of the world and yet here they are being beat down and destroyed by Rome and Israel. You know what? They're reminded that God's grace is freely given to those who are lowly and humble to accomplish his special purposes and you know what? We also are given a, declar- a, a promise that comes with that expectation. And, except ours didn't come from Gabriel. It actually came from our Lord. And you know what he said? It wasn't Gabriel saying the Lord is with you, so be assured of his provision and, and all of his resources and carrying this out. It was actually our Lord who said to us upon giving us the commission Uh, the great work of salvation history to go and make disciples of every nation, discipling them and and teaching them to obey all I've commanded. He's given us, because if you look at that, you're going to go, ooh, I don't think I'm going to measure up. I don't think I'm up for that task. I'm a a guy of pretty uh, low abilities, and I just don't think I'm going to be able to accomplish it. So he also gives us a promise. He says, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Do you see now how this greeting is very different? It's rooted in our same calling. And by the way, the same calling of the Gentile church at that time. And so they were reminded 
right then. Oh my goodness, this is us. Mary is a picture of the church and how this calling comes to her and how she's to respond is the way we too are to respond. So this announcement is heavy and and the, the faithful believer the one who knew their scriptures would have seen all of this and, and it would have been building in them of what this announcement is going to be like. Well, let's look at uh, verses 31 through 33. And behold, said Gabriel, you, Mary, will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And a lot of us, you know, Todd's been going through David, and so a lot of us, I'm sure, Second Samuel 7's in our head, right? Well, so this also is following an Old Testament pattern. When a birth is announced, okay, and in this case, Jesus is, uh, and He commands them to name him something particular. And, you know, they don't always make a big deal over what the name means, but Jesus as Savior becomes a major theme for Luke. So I'll have to admit that when he says, name him Jesus, Yahweh saves, uh, you should have taken note that this is one through whom Yahweh will save. And all these other signs point to the same. Um, And then he goes on to describe his mission or his ministry, okay? And so that's what we come to see about Jesus. And and we come to see real quick the most important thing, which is why Joseph has mentioned before, that it's going to be a very Davidic, kingly, regal announcement. Uh, And this language has parallels in 2 Samuel 7, which I put on the notes there, but I'm not going to read it. But that coming through an individual, because if you read 2 Samuel 7, you'll see it's about the the household of David, right? Well, in 1 Chronicles 17... You'll find, and that's reference for you, so you can go back and look later, it really talks about this single one through whom there would be an eternal throne of David. And that's some, that's some out there stuff if you, if you really think about that. This one person through whom there would be a throne forever from David's family. And so this is coming to bear right now in this announcement. Uh, when it refers to the Son of the Most High, that's Old Testament language too. And it, and it doesn't have to mean deity. There's a lot of things that come to play that make us realize Jesus indeed is God. But right here, it really means someone that has a special, intimate relationship with God. And it's very clear that J- Jesus does. And, and while the New Testament's the first place that, like, Son of God gets put together with Messiah, uh, these are both terms that are used in the Old Testament for someone who is a Davidic ruler. And so they're paralleling Son of a God and Messiah, and this clearly to them is a Davidic ruler. And so, and Jesus, he's the Davidic ruler par excellence. He's the greatest one to come. So obviously he's a Son of God as well. Um, and so uh, his connection to the Davidic throne, that's the starting point for what Luke wants to say about him. But he doesn't just have a position. And I'll say this. There's a sense in which we think of Jesus the king more as a position, but it's clear here that he doesn't just have a position as king. He actually has a realm and an everlasting reign. He has both of those things. Um, His position 
by the way, is the ruler over the nation Israel, which is expressed as from the house of Jacob here. He didn't announce him as Jesus ruler of the world, though he certainly comes to be. It's Jesus the ruler of the nation of Israel or the house of Jacob. Jesus comes as king of the Jews. That's how he comes into the world. The Davidic king comes to his own. Now, Luke is later going to play out how his people rejected him and how he came to be the ruler of all the world. Uh, But for now, it's just the facts. Jesus came as king of the Jews to rule over the house of Jacob. And the phrase forever, by the way, parallel shall not be an end. Those two go together and it clarifies the everlasting duration. Nothing is going to overcome Jesus or bring a halt to his reign. And this is significant. Uh, I want to tell you about, uh, real quick, a story. I was going to a class at DTS, and uh, we're and there's a lot of collaboration in that class, and so there's a lot of students, and they're young. I'm a little bit older than the professor, so, you know, I was very out of place. I, I find myself in those places, and we started talking about Jesus as the ruler, and I made a statement about, well, well there was kind of a debate that he required us to be in, and somehow... They had acted like Jesus wasn't really fully ruling right now. And I was floored. And so immediately I kind of, as I can do sometimes, got very aggressive. And I was like, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. Are, are you somehow saying Jesus somehow isn't ruling over heaven and earth? And everybody gets real awkward. And I was like, I really need to know if that's what you're saying right now because I'm going to have to say you're absolutely wrong. And everybody got real weird. I'm not real eloquent in those situations. And so uh, everybody got real weird. And finally the professor spoke up and goes, uh, just for the record, everybody, he is ruling over heaven and earth right now. And, you know, all, all the students are like, oh, okay. You know, so... So this sense of Jesus ruling right now forever, I think is something significant for all of us. Because we're in a particular time where you don't always see that. And and guess what? So was that church in the first century as they're being persecuted, as God's people are the ones who are being trampled down. How is he ruling right now? And so even for those young ones in that class, they were trying to work up to He really is ruling all heaven and earth right this second? And the answer absolutely is yes. This is the king whose rule never ends. And right now, he's ruling all heaven and earth. And that's why we sing praises to our king as we did this morning. Because indeed, he is king. And he sits as king. Matter of fact, Peter when, when Pentecost came and the tongues of fire came on the disciples and the Spirit came into the church, you remember that? After Jesus' uh, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he sent the helper. He said, it'll be a time better than th- even this because I'm sending my Spirit, God, very God, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, into the church, and I will be with you all always. Well, this had just happened at Pentecost, and Peter's explaining it. And when he explains it, he lets them know that David was saying this all the time. This is in keeping with the testimony of David, of the one who would come, whose rule is forever. And how did they know his rule had begun and it was forever? Because the gift of the Spirit had been poured out on all of his people. 
So it's a very unique time, and I want to use that to explain how Jesus rules right now. And I'm going to do it through a couple stories. The first one is my dear friend, Linda Whitaker. And this is how all the people of God came to see that indeed Jesus ruled by his spirit and the evidence of faith, hope, and love in the midst of a hopeless and loveless world where it looked like death still reigned. God's people weren't affected by it. Linda and her family has had a significant loss. It was a surprise. And the witness of the rule of Christ has been evident. For one, because death doesn't have a final say for them. The death that's behind, that's the tool of Satan and behind all the empires that they all threaten, it had no, no bearing over this family who believed in Jesus, for whom Jesus was the king of their lives. Their lives were marked by faith, an unwavering faith. It was marked by hope, a hope that indeed he's with his Lord now, and so shall we, and that death doesn't have the final say because they'll be raised up again because he is over death and has conquered it as well. He is king, and the fact that he is king is the only ounce of comfort that exists as we face the tragedies of death even today. In fact, it's not just Linda who knew that. All who's been around their family and her, all who has seen this great faith, hope, and love have come to see also for themselves the rule of Christ with his people. And this is too where the people of their time would have seen this rule and reign of Christ that is real and is present. For he indeed reigns right now over all heaven and earth. And so he will talk, Luke will talk about how this isn't fully revealed yet because there's a second coming of Jesus, but indeed he does rule. And this is where it talks about his rule that's eternal, that's coming in even right now. And so with the coming of the Davidic king, the kingdom of God draws very near. Can you hear the church's questions about Christ's reign and God's plan being addressed even right now? Because he's setting it all up right now. This is the one who has come who will reign forever. And he'll pick it up later in Acts. Well, there's a little transition here. Uh, Mary's role in God's plan is really crucial. And this is important for y'all. But the initiative and powerful work of God is really the point here. And you're going to see it right here in the text as we look at the announcements. You ready? Here we go. We're going to pick up right there in um, verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Since I'm a virgin, do you, do you hear her argument? How in the world can this son be born to me who's a virgin? That it's, this, the question's real simple. She's, she knows basic biology, and she's going, uh, you want to talk about feeling inadequate, right? <laughs> a virgin who's going to bear a son. I'm, I'm inadequate. I, believe me, I'm not going to measure up to that task, okay? It, it, that can't happen. And she's not saying it can't happen. She's just saying, she knows it can happen, but how? How does that happen? And this, this, this is part of the announcement, her, her, his response. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit. Remember when I made a big deal about the Spirit-inspired leaders and the Spirit-inspired prophets and how crucial the Spirit was in all those times? Well, guess who comes on the scene again right now who is central for Luke all along? Here we go. The Holy Spirit 
will come upon you. Here we have the creative workings of the Spirit of God on the scene again. By the way, same Holy Spirit who hovered over the deep at creation, carrying out that creative act of creation. Same Holy Spirit who formed man from the dust of the ground, the same Holy Spirit that breathed the life the breath of life into ever live, every living creature, that's the Holy Spirit right here. So he's explaining that Holy Spirit, he's going to come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That term overshadow you refers to the Shekinah cloud over the tabernacle, which represented the presence of God in the heavens right there on earth. So I want you to put some things together. Watch this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is how the impossible happens. Okay, by the way, the way that you come to be the salvation of God through the world is the same way. So make connections right now. Ready? The Holy Spirit of God, this great creative actor for God, it, who, who is God, very God, is coming on the scene and he will overshadow you with his presence. Just like in the cloud in the tabernacle, just like on the Mount of Transfiguration, they are overshadowed by the presence of God there too. So the presence of God through his spirit is the answer of how the virgin will conceive. By the way, the questions you might have as the church, how can I carry out the purposes of God? I mean, really. Hayden Frick calls me fat and 42. How does fat and 42 carry out the purposes of God? Seriously. Seriously, I'll tell you how because they give the answer right here. God, very God, the Holy Spirit, the one who was there in the beginning creating all this, he will overshadow you and the presence of the Almighty will be with you through that. And, and then the solution, you ready? And here's, here's, the, here's the real point of everything. Um, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, He's going to give her a little proof. Even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. He's just pointing out, let me just point out that I just did the impossible. Just like I've always done because I'm God. Okay, because he's God and that's what he does. And God is on the scene and he's doing it right now, Mary. So don't you worry, you believers in the Lord. God, through his spirit, is on the scene, even right now, through the great gift of Christ and the spirit who he has given us. And he will accomplish the work. And guess what? The same is told to her. For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. You being the instrument of God to bring about the salvation of every nation of the world, trust me, you're not up to it. Trust me. Along with Paul, we confess who is sufficient for these things. Along with Mary, we confess who is sufficient for these things, at which time Gabriel and the lock will stand up and say, indeed, God is sufficient for these things, for all things are possible through him. And then you see the response, church. This is the response to Christmas. Don't miss it. This is a response to the gift of Jesus and his spirit. Don't miss it. Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. She acknowledged her lowly position before the most high God. 
as the bond slave of the Lord in which she will respond to him according to his position who is king and Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. She says, I'm yours to do as you please. By the way, it would have come at great personal cost to her being betrothed to Joseph and having a child. Great personal cost. And you know what she does? She acknowledges who she is and who God is and says, Thy will be done. As you say, so let it be. And the angel departed for her. Well, I want to give a quick little, man, I got one minute, I'm going to do it. Mine's the present that you open, you're like, oh. Um, so remember this church who's being persecuted. Remember all that's going on. And they would have been very encouraged to read this because you heard their questions even being answered in that announcement and their remembrance of what it means to be the people of God. And by the way, they were looking forward to the 70th week just as we are as the world comes down upon us and seeks to destroy us. So the reign of Christ is shown in our unwavering faith, in our hope of resurrection, and in our extravagant love for one another at all costs. In our willingness to say with Mary and two millennia of saints, behold the bondservant of the Lord. Let it be done to me as you have said. Let that be our Christmas response this morning as we surrender all to the king for this reason. Because what he has said, he will accomplish because there is nothing that is impossible for God. And the 70th week is coming. And we're praying, Lord, hasten the day that you will return. But until then, he's accomplishing a salvific work for every nation of the world. And he has chosen us the unlikely lot who is weak and despised to carry that out. Let us look to him in faith to do the work and carry it out and be thankful for the grace that he has chosen to work through us. What a great, extraordinary gift that he has freely bestowed. Let us receive it as Mary has. Merry Christmas. You're dismissed.